All right, welcome everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us to this, for this live taping of This Movie Changed Me. Um, yes, you're being recorded, so the applause is very helpful. <laughs> thank you. Um, we are recording this for a future episode of season two, which is out right now. So if you could silence your cell phones, that would help the sanity of our producers who need to edit the show, and it just makes it a lot easier for them. Uh, before we begin, I just want to take a moment of silence to acknowledge the land on which we currently are here in Minneapolis, the land of the Dakota people. Thank you. And I'm so excited to be here with Minneapolis City Council Vice President Andrea Jenkins to talk about Spike Lee's Malcolm X. Wow. <laughs> If, if Malcolm X was here, he would probably add um, that we also, it, this country was built by stolen labor. Mm. He would. Thank you for adding that. Malcolm X is here in the room with us. You just can't see him, but he is right here <laughs> in the middle. Um, I'm really excited to watch the movie after our conversation. It's the first time we've gotten to do this. Um, I've also never seen this movie in a theater with an audience just at home, so I'm really excited to see it with all of you. I want to also offer a special thanks to Zoe Bourgeret. Did I yes. get it right? Bourgeret. Bourgeret. <laughs> Who's Andrea's poly, uh, policy associate. She helped make this conversation with Andrea happen, so we're really grateful to her. Shout out to Zoe. Are you there, Zoe? If she is. Ah. All right. Either way, she's going to get recognition. Um, I also want to thank Patrick Marshkey, uh, Ward Johnson, Lauren Wicklander, and all of the staff at the Parkway for being such fantastic movie-loving partners. Let's give them some applause. And lastly, I want to thank the team behind This Movie Changed Me, some of who are actually here, and I'd like to take this opportunity to publicly recognize them, so please help me do that. If you're here, stand up so we can applaud you. Tony. Maya, Kristen, Chris, Lil, Prophet, and Zach. And I don't think any of them stood up. Okay, thank you, Maya. Tony. <laughs> um, so let me give you a brief overview of what's gonna happen tonight. Uh, Andrea and I are gonna talk about 30 minutes or so, and apparently I think tonight is happening. It's two o'clock in the afternoon, I just realized. <laughs> in my head, it's already nighttime. Um, we're gonna talk for about 30 minutes, and then we're gonna open it up for questions from all of you. So start thinking about those questions that you have in mind. And they will be recorded, so just keep that in mind as you think about getting a microphone in front of you. Um, once our podcast taping is done, we're gonna have an intermission where I will be enjoying a fabulous cocktail, and I hope mm -hmm. you'll join me before coming back into the theater to watch Malcolm X at 3.15. So I will warn you, the movie is three hours and 22 minutes long. And there's no intermission because Spike Lee did not want to put one in. So just plan your bathroom breaks wisely. <laughs> I think this is the one time where you could break the rule and just maybe ask the person next to you to just tell you what you missed <laughs> while you're in the bathroom and maybe the only time. Um, and yeah, I think that's all we need logistically to start the conversation. So Andrea, I just want to thank you for being here with me and for choosing Malcolm X as the movie that changed your life. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, when Tony, one of our producers, reached out to see if you'd be interested in being a guest for the podcast, we had no idea what movie you would choose. And I was thrilled to hear that you picked Malcolm X. And I want to read a little bit of what you wrote in your email back to us, explaining why you chose it. You said, growing up as a kid, I remember being frightened by the way the media portrayed figures like Malcolm X, as he was always associated with hate. This movie gave a fuller picture of who Malcolm X was and depicted him in a more humane way than the media did. What you said really resonated with me because it reminded me of how I felt when I watched it for the first time as a teenager. Um, I felt like I was discovering a history I'd never learned in school. Mm -hmm. I grow, grew up going to public schools in Miami and I feel like I learned a really superficial Cliff Notes version of the civil rights movement, which included mostly Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, but Malcolm X was just a tiny little blip. Right, yeah. And they were on the opposite sides of each other. Mm -hmm. That was always the portrayal. And, you know, what this movie shows is that that's not the full story. 
The, the movie shows the life and the story of a man with multiple identities. He was first born Malcolm Little in Omaha, Nebraska. Then in his 20s, he was known as Detroit Red. Mm-hmm. And finally, he became Malcolm X Shabazz, the Muslim American hero and revolutionary. And the movie shows that the full story of Malcolm X is far more complicated, hopeful, transformative, and as you said, beautifully human. Mm. To quote from one of my prophets, Roger Ebert, who wrote this when he first saw uh, the movie, back when he reviewed it in 1992. And if you haven't read the whole review, I highly recommend it. It really is amazing. He said, walking into Malcolm X, I expected an angrier, I expected an angrier film than Spike Lee has made. This film is not an assault, but an explanation. And it is not exclusionary. It deliberately addresses all races in its audience. White people going into the film may expect to meet a Malcolm X who will attack them but they will find a Malcolm X whose experiences and motives make him understandable and finally heroic. To understand the stages of Malcolm's life is to walk for a time in the steps of many African Americans and to glimpse where the journey might lead. Some powerful stuff. Wow, I'm I'm getting emotional thinking about the film right now. You will cry. In this movie, I guarantee you will cry. So, so before we go too far into the movie, I'd like you to take some time and just close your eyes, and I want you to think about for about ten seconds the first time you saw the movie, who you were with, how old you were, where you were, all the memories that you have, and I'll just chime in when those ten seconds are up. Yeah, what memories came up for you? Wow. Um, it was probably, I was very early 30s, like maybe 31. So you were living here already. I was living in Minneapolis. Um, maybe I saw it at like, Southdale or somewhere like that. Uh, <laughs> a great mall. Uh, Go there often. Right. I think um, there were some other theaters that were sort of operational back then. There was some theaters downtown. So maybe I saw it downtown. Do you have a memory of the I'm, movie being played in a lot of places or was it more of like a kind of art house experience? I mean, Southdale's a big theater, but... Right. No, I think it was it was pretty... Widely distributed, as far as I can remember. Um, And because it had a really pretty big lead up to the film. Um, It was in the wake of the L.A. riots. It was right in the wake of the L.A. riots. There was this, there had been this really swell of, I think, Malcolm X sort of re-reclamation, as it were, the X-hats came out before, mm-hmm. they were popular before the movie. Yeah. Um, and rappers, hip hop artists were sort of like mixing some of his speeches into their mm-hmm. songs. And, and so there was a lot of anticipation for the movie. I think it was pretty widely distributed. Mm. But I feel like I went to see it with um, my partner um, at the time, interestingly, um, pretty sure I was much more masculine presenting mm. at the time. Um, and yeah, there was just this feeling of pride. It was, it was kind of like, I don't know, did anybody experience um, Black Panther? Oh, yeah. In the theater? Yeah, it was like a <laughs> sacred space. Everybody right. in there together. Yeah. And, and a particularly I, black space. Right. Is exactly. that what that was like? It was very much like that. Mm. It felt very much like that. Um, even though at Southdale, it was a little <laughs> less of a... <laughs> black space. <laughs> Could have may have been the blackest that had been at that point. <laughs> right. But I think it felt like um, you know, being black was um, being openly expressive of one's blackness 
was a thing, mm. right? Um, and I think, you know, for much of history prior, you know, that was not no. the case. I mean, it, there was a very complex um, history of being black in America. And I think um, Malcolm really addressed that yeah. in a really beautiful way. Like, you know, um, trying to sort of re um, reimagine the narrative that had been shaped around mm. blacks in America and um, creating a sense of pride, mm. a sense of um, determination, mm. you know. Um, how much did you know conviction. about Malcolm X when you went into the movie? And like, how did the movie shape what you knew of him and what you kind of walked out with? You know, I knew that a lot of people had read the autobiography of Malcolm X and were really moved by it. It's interesting. I, if, if this had been the book that changed your life, yeah. it would have been Roots. Oh, which... Cause which was also written by Alex Yeah, Alex Haley. Haley, yeah. Which is the autobiography of Malcolm X as told to Alex Haley is right. the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that that book, though I had I had watched the miniseries mm. long before I read the book. Yeah. Uh, in the the movie, the miniseries was impactful, but the book, like, just shifted something in yeah. me. Um, and there was one particular scene where um, Kunta Kinte, who was sort of the original kidnapped. Um, patriarch of the family, mm-hmm. um, Alex Haley's family. This is, that was a really a true story as, as he remembered it. Um, but at any rate, he runs in, he's like in his late 60s and he's on a plantation at this point in time. He had become um, like a driver for the master and they were on some different plantation, and he runs into a guy that says to him, "Assalamu alaikum," mm. and he had not heard anybody greet him like mm. that for since he was fifteen, sixteen years old. Mm. And he just broke down in tears, and they had this moment of just recollecting their lives in Africa for couple of hours Mm. and it was one of the most impactful things Mm. in his life um and um yeah it was that book but the movie um Malcolm X you knew the book obviously it wasn't everyone was talking Mm -hmm. about it exactly um and so you know I, I I knew who he was I had these memories as a child of mm. him being this sort of villainized. Um, and still, I mean, Louis Farrakhan, who was <laughs> Malcolm X's um, mentor yeah. at some point in time, and contemporary, but um, he had sort of higher rank than, than Malcolm. In the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, in the Muslim, in the NOI, yeah. the Nation of Islam. The Nation of Islam. Um, and so, and he was still, and is still to this day, villainized as, mm-hmm. you know, um, anti-Semitic and mm-hmm. um, anti-white. So there was, there was this, this sort of surface knowledge of Malcolm X, but um, I, I was not prepared for the depth. Mm. of his experience and humanity. Yeah. yeah. You know, I watched this movie last week as I was getting ready for mm-hmm. this conversation with you, and this may be weird because we haven't met before today, but I felt right. like you were there with me watching oh, it. Wow, okay. Because um, I kept thinking about your own journey as an African-American transgender woman, mm-hmm. the many identities you hold. Right. 
poet, oral historian, activist, city council member, mm -hmm. just to name a few, and the <laughs> wow. distinct chapters of your life. Um, <laughs> all of this I watched uh, as I saw Denzel Washington portray Malcolm X on screen. And it reminded me of what um, Atala Shabazz, one of Malcolm X's daughters, wrote. Mm -hmm. uh, she writes it in the foreword of the book, in the book, Autobiography of Malcolm X. She writes, my father's life and its stages of personal metamorphosis and enlightenment stand as a confirmation of how one can, through witness and transformation, ultimately claim one's own divine path. I'm just curious to know how this movie, whether consciously or unconsciously, shaped your own path, like your own claiming of your own divine path, as you thought about the many chapters and identities of your life. I'm getting emotional again. We're, um, we're, we're in an emotional space. We can do it. Uh, this is on being, huh? That's right. <laughs> As on being studios, that's right. We're allowed to, to go there. <laughs> There's some spiritualness <laughs> going on. I'm feeling. Um, yeah. I, one of the things that impacted me the most about this movie was less about Malcolm X and it was about Denzel Washington and how he became Malcolm X. Mm. Yeah. Right? Like he <laughs> literally, there's a point in the movie when it's about halfway through and you're like, oh my God, that's mm -hmm. Malcolm X. Yeah. And, um, and so... I was really transfixed by the shifts mm. in um, realities. Yeah. And I, because I think I have experienced many of those yeah. um, in, in many, many ways. Um, some that almost mirrored that. Yeah. Um, Talk a little bit about that, yeah. And, you know, well... I was never in, in penitentiary, but my father was for about 15 years. And so as a child, uh, as a young person, I would go visit my mm. father, my sister and I, my grandparents would take us. And, um, and, and like they literally wore the same denim um, yeah. sort of um, the uniforms, uniforms yeah. that uh, Malcolm X war um, for a period of his life he does go to prison yeah for a pretty substantial pretty period substantial of his period, life yeah. um, and so you know there was that sort of realization that and I was, I was angry at my father for mm -hmm. a long time but that movie helped me understand how this society had really um, conspired to undermine black men in such a way that only the very lucky yes. few mm -hmm. were able to overcome the, the hurdles and the challenges um, that were legal that were societal, that were sort of embedded in our, like baked into our system. Mm -hmm. And that is still there um, yeah. to this day. And it, it, it helped me have a little bit more of an understanding of the, the challenges that my own father um, experienced. He was, my father was, probably more akin to Detroit Red. Red. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he didn't get that mm. opportunity to, to transform mm. like Malcolm did. Yeah. I think about the scene, which watching it today feels just as relevant when him and um, his best friend, played by Spike Lee, are mm -hmm. in the courtroom getting their verdict 
And right. the judge is literally just throwing sentence after sentence after sentence mm-hmm. on Malcolm X to the point that he just starts laughing. Right. You know, because it's, it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, he's going to be in prison his whole life is essentially what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's a powerful film. Um, yeah. And, and initially I was like, why am I picking this movie? It's long <laughs> as fuck. Because <laughs> it's long and it's hard. <laughs> and it's hard. Yeah, it's but still then, challenging. But there's this, the ending is so beautiful. Yeah. Um, so it's a, this film is sim, cinematographically, if mm-hmm. that's a yeah. phrase, a term, uh, Brilliant. It's a classic Spike Lee movie. (laughs) If you know Spike Lee's filmmaking, um, it's a a classic Spike Lee movie. I actually watched Do the Right Thing a couple of weeks ago. Uh, And, um, you know, the soundtrack, the the lighting, um, all the things in this movie... Are very intentional, yeah, um, and very meticulously. Um, I wonder how much footage he had, yeah, to get <laughs> down three to hours three hours. And and <laughs> yeah, well, challenging is one of the things that I love about Spike Lee's work. Is it's always challenging, mm-hmm. and you know, watching this, we we talked about the fact this movie was released in 1992 in the wake of the LA riots. So the movie opens with those interspersed images of Rodney, Rodney King. King being brutally beaten by police mm-hmm. officers, as well as the image of the American flag burning while we hear Denzel Washington um, reciting, performing one of Malcolm X's speeches. And then you have Terrence Blanchard's it's score. score. Yeah. And it's just so haunting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a mo- that, that, that opening has stayed in my mind since I saw it when I was a teenager. Yeah. As well as the scene where... And it burns into an X. And it burns right? into an X. And you're like, that's the first like five minutes. Yeah. And you're like, where is this movie going to go? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and it goes uh, to places that, watching it today, it was actually shocking to see how relevant. Like the scene where Malcolm's getting ready to talk, I think it must have been Columbia University or something, mm-hmm. and a white, really well-intentioned... Uh, a college student, a woman, comes up to him and says, you know, I really love your work. I'm so with you. Mm-hmm. You know, what can I do to help? And he just says to her, nothing. And that scene landed really differently for me today, today watching it mm-hmm. with where mm-hmm. we are in this moment. Um, I'm just curious about how these scenes land for you today. I mean, 1982 was a different time, and yet there's so much that's still so resonant, and honestly, that hasn't changed. Yeah, no, I mean, Malcolm X is talking about police brutality Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the murder of unarmed black men. That's still very much on the front page of the newspaper today. Um, Unemployment. Yeah. Access to education. All the things that Malcolm X talked about. Yeah. And he was concerned about health care mm-hmm. and babies, you know, dying in childbirth yeah. and mothers, you know. I mean, and all of these issues are still relevant and mm-hmm. prevalent with us today. Um, yeah. So, I, you know, and it, as it was in 1992 when the film was released. Um, yeah. And... Um, we do, I think, continue to move closer mm. to um, the reality of this American experiment. But every time we get a little closer, we get dragged a long way back. Mm. And I feel like mm. we're in that moment yeah. of being, um, of, of the pushback. Yeah. But... Um, we, like many, many generations before us, have the opportunity to change that. Mm. And we had to show up and um, participate, which means vote. Um, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And we have to um, 
really think about all the way up the line because, you know, my, my, well, I know this to be true because Malcolm X said it, right? Mm. Um, when, when John F. Kennedy was um, unfortunately murdered. Um, yeah, they show this in the film. Right? right. He says, you know, this is chickens coming home to roost. And um, he was very deeply criticized for that Including statement. by Elijah Muhammad, his right. leader. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, this recent manifestation, this person mm. that's living at 1600 uh, Pennsylvania Avenue who shall rename Nameless, who will be visiting this city October mm-hmm. 10th. And um, I am very much in solidarity with our mayor, and I won't leave it at that. Mm. But... Um, um this is this is not a new phenomenon. Yeah. Folks, this is America. And um you know, we can change it. We have to want to. We have to recognize that the the reality that Malcolm came to at the end of his life that everybody on this planet matters, deserves mm-hmm. love, deserves Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is not just something that is um, sacred to rich, wealthy, white people. It is, it is the human right of everybody on this entire planet. Mm. And, um, and those were the values that he stood up for. And that, I think, is what really... Um, makes this movie stand out for me. Mm. I'm curious, Andrea, what you think, you know, the movie starts with what we talked about, right? That, that very powerful um, combination of the American flag and the music and Malcolm's words and the Rodney King beatings. And then mm-hmm. it ends in an entirely different place. Mm-hmm. We see Nelson Mandela. We see schoolrooms with children, um, hopeful messages. I am Malcolm X. I am Malcolm I X. I am Malcolm X. Yes. <laughs> What do you think Spike Lee was trying to say with those two contrasts? Like, what did you take away when you saw it? So I, I, I believe he was trying to say, you know, this is the reality of America. I, I, you know, Spike Lee is enigmatic in and of himself, yes. right? Um, and I think the opening of the film lays out the reality of this brutal, violent landscape that is America. And the ending is the the hope, the optimism, and the faith that is African Americans that has given us the ability mm. to survive 400 mm. years. This is 2019. 1619 was when the first enslaved, 20 uh, enslaved Africans Landed on the shores of Virginia, mm. and um, and um, they have been trying to exterminate black people, kill us, every since, and yet we have still survived. Mm. And it is that hopefulness and that optimism um, and that belief in um, humanity. You know, um, Malcolm X had been in, I'm sorry, Nelson Mandela had been in prison for 27 years. Yes. I think when the movie was filmed, he'd only recently been released and they got him in those footage. One year. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, that's that's the message I think he's trying to to capture. You know, one of the things that I really value the most watching this movie now um, at the age of 37 that I didn't see at the age of 13 or 14 when I first saw it is that the character of Malcolm X models someone who is a lifelong learner. Mm-hmm. He, in the movie, we see him make mistakes, yeah. and he owns them publicly. 
no mm-hmm. less, like publicly he apologizes, he owns his mistakes, and we watch him change his mind repeatedly. Yeah. And I've watched a lot of movies and I can't think of another leading character who models this as clearly as he does. And I'm just, I wonder how this movie, when you think about it, and Malcolm in particular as a lifelong learner, how that's kind of grown with you, how it's changed as you've gotten older and you've seen it throughout your life. Hmm. Well, I absolutely relate to the lifelong learner (laughs) (laughs) label. Um, So I graduated from high school in 1979, exactly 40 years ago. (laughs) Um, I moved to Minneapolis to go to the University of Minnesota. Yeah. Um, And I did about three years um, at the U. And and then left school not, um, not intentionally. I was sort of forced out. Um, Is this when you were forced, you were forced to be outed? I was outed mm-hmm. by one of my fraternity brothers as um, as gay is what he how he framed it, um, mm. and I came out as bisexual. Um, so so kind of very publicly having this yeah learning you know, moment really yeah deeply internal reality, um, like literally um, played out in real life. Um, And yeah, I had to leave school because we were roommates and he kicked me out of the apartment and Mm -hmm. I had no place else to go. So I had to go back home, come out to my family. In Chicago. In Chicago. Um, so there was this whole sort of tumultual time and I would go back to school periodically, um, throughout my life, but eventually it took me 20 years to complete my bachelor's degree Mm. from Metropolitan State, uh, university whose, uh, motto is be a lifelong learner. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. (laughs) So, um, so I did that, and and then, but right at that time, right around um, the time that I I came out as um, a trans identified person, which was probably around nineteen ninety two, ninety three. Wow. So right mm-hmm. when this movie was was being released um i you know when i when i came out i felt like i i opened myself up and it was very public um and at the time sort of the medical world was saying you know transgender people you should come out, you know, do your transition, move to another city, mm. um, and just create a new identity. But but I didn't want to do that. You yeah. know, I had family here. I had a, a daughter from a marriage um, that I had entered into as a way to try to overcome my gender mm. dysphoria. Um and so, so I stayed here in this very public environment, and um, mm. you know, people. I, I still run into people today who reference my past life, mm. and you know, um, and so I think that was, you know, you can kind of relate that to this um, yeah. transformation. I think that. Malcolm X's life um, took and how the movie really sort of distinctively portrays those different phases of his life and learning. And my life has been very much like that. Yeah. Like 
these sort of completely distinct chapters. Mm. Um, but they all kind of flow into each other and feed into each other, which I think um, was very similar to Malcolm X. Yeah. It's one of the things I, I really valued was that I feel like the movie's giving us permission to do that. Mm-hmm. And his life gives us permission to do that. Right. You don't have to be just one thing. Exactly. He would have never been Malcolm X had he not been in penitentiary, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it just wouldn't have happened. It's where he converted and where mm-hmm. he discovered Islam. Yeah. 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 So you write in the preface to this beautiful poetry book, The Tea is Not Silent. This book is an effort to create understanding and awareness of a marginalized community, a community that, a community that is invisible to most and vilified by some, a community that is traumatized by the constant threat of violence, as well as unemployment, housing instability, discrimination in multiple areas of social and economic life, a community that is also creative, beautiful, and resilient. And these words remind me of so many of Malcolm X's and of what he fought for. And I'd just love for you to close our conversation by reading your amazing poem, We Are Not Quitters, from the same collection, if you don't mind. Mm, Wow. I put it for you with the little two tabs there at the end. Okay, thank you for um, that introduction to this poem. Um, You know, one of the really amazing things about Malcolm X, and I think about so many leaders, um, some but not all, but he was really deeply motivated by his love for black people. Yes. That was his mission. Mm. Um, This poem is called We Are Not Quitters. Um, It was written in 2009, Mm. right after the the first um, State of the Union speech given by the first black president of the United States of America, Barack Obama. Mm. And he talked about these young people that had written him a letter from uh, high school in Mm. Arkansas. Mm. Um, You know, they said they didn't have new books in their school. Um, Their school had holes in the walls. They didn't have, like, a lunch program at their school. Like, their parents had to come to the school and, like, (laughs) cook for them, but they were so inspired by his election, and they wrote to him this long and passionate letter that ended with, we are not quitters. Mm-hmm. I don't know much, but I've seen a few things, and a few things have seen me too. Seku Sandiata. One, this I know, that I wonder what I know sometimes. I know that there are things that I don't know. I do know that there are songs in the key of life, songs in amethysts, in opals, in sapphires, songs in the sycamore trees, singing in the persimmons in periwinkle. There are songs ringing from oceans, from creeks, from seas, from brooks, from rivers. Songs bouncing from the throats of the bumblebee, the bullfrog, the beagle. A song in the whistling whir of the wheels on an automobile, a red flyer, a locomotive, or even a bicycle that still slides you from point A to Z. I know this. There is always a song. Two, I know that in the absence of music, there is a narrative of sorts, a human tale 
as epic as any ever whispered or bellowed from the second stair of the portico or stuttered and strained on a shivering morning in the silvery sunshine to the entire world. I know that there is a story etched in the center of the earth, in our collective consciousness, in our distant past. I know that there is no end to this story, no beginning to this story. It manifests in poems, in songs, in everyday language, in complex internal rhymes. This we do for love. Three, all that I know I do not know. All that I see, I have not seen. All that I hear, I have not heard. Those singing amethysts, opals, sapphires, persimmon, periwinkle, oceans, seas, rivers, bumblebees, the beagle. A song can serve up love on a wax platter. A love supreme will stay in my heart. A love that is supreme as in above all else. A love that is supreme as in let no man put asunder. A love that is supreme as in this will be as in evergreen, as in tie a yellow ribbon round the old oak tree. A love that will stay in my heart. And if it is dark and you feel lonely and cold, and if you get tired and fatigue sets in, remember, we are not quitters. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you. Thank you. So we'd love to open it up to the room for anyone who has questions. Maya and Tony, our producers here, will come around and you just raise your hand. Yeah. I can finally see you guys. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> um, the first thing I wanted to say is, um, as a, I'm gonna try not to be emotional, but as a okay. white, as a okay white person in the city, I feel very grateful um, for your welcome of us into this conversation mm -hmm. and, um, and grateful to the people of color in the room. And the story you shared of specifically about your father mm -hmm. um, was very moving to me. And um, I'm, I'm grateful to be sitting here and that you would share that um, with a room full of people that have our shared history mm -hmm. um, that we do. I wanted to ask a question about um, what you said about Denzel Washington and mm -hmm. his portrayal of Malcolm X, um, that you were really transfixed by his performance and that he really became Malcolm X. And I was just wondering, at the time as you were watching it, um, it, how watching him changed you and mm. and your vision of maybe even becoming Malcolm X in a way as a as an activist or, or taking on some of those traits um, yeah um, thank you for your acknowledgement of the emotional labor that is inherent in and sharing um, these really intimate parts of ourselves. Um, it means a lot to have that recognized. Um, yeah, I mean, I have, I have literally become someone else <laughs> in, you know, in my life, like, I was one person, and now I am a completely different person. But I'm, I'm really still the same person. 
And um, that, witnessing that on stage was certainly a um, sort of a, a moment to see that in real time um, and I think maybe a model for how to be authentic um, with myself and with the people that I love. Yeah. I don't know if that fully answered your question, but that's yeah, what I Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Andrea, how you doing? I'm good. What's good? Uh, I didn't know that about your father, so my question kind of relates to um, you know, how in life we have to wait for things and we don't know how long we have to wait. Mm-hmm. And when I was sitting in prison for three years, you think you got all the time in the world to gather up all these answers to your questions, your spiritual mm-hmm. questions or otherwise, mm-hmm. but they still might never come for another decade or so. Mm-hmm. And like only a thing that came recently when you talk about transformation is, um, um, I remember like, cause prison is horrible. And I was like, one of the, one of the five prisons I was in was a private owned prison. So you can imagine hmm. it's even more horrible. Hmm. And, uh, <laughs> they like, I, I remember writing and they, they, to the therapist and said, I need, I just want to talk to them. I just want to have a meaningful conversation at length. And that's why I'm asking for, to see a therapist. And they would write back, Mr. Franklin, there's nothing wrong with you. So no. Hmm. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> I became a writer because of the deplorable conditions in that prison, because I just needed to create conversations with two people, even if it wasn't in real life. Mm. So like, it was only like two weeks ago I realized, like, hey, you know, I'm not saying I needed to be in prison, but there's always a lesson, and, um, mm. and, but it, it takes a lot of patience to find peace with all the horrible shit that's happening or that happens to you know, us as individuals or, or as a people. So I'm wondering, like, what's the greatest lesson you learned about patience? Huh. Well, Mr. Franklin, I'm glad you're at home. Mm, yes. <laughs> Thank you for um, sharing your own experience with um, incarceration or um, what Michelle Alexander would call the ex Continuation of slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, patience. You know, uh, it took me twenty years to get my bachelor's degree, mm. and I'm still paying off the student loans. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> Lily. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> um, no, it is, it is something that is a challenge, I think, in this society where, you know, when, one of the big issues that I kind of see on the horizon in my work in City Hall is 5G. Have you guys heard about 5G? No. Where... 5G is like the next iteration of cell technology. So we have 4G now, or 3G or whatever. And 5G is supposed to be able to help us download our uh, three-hour and 34-minute movie in like 13 seconds or something. Why do we need that? Yeah, because everything (laughs) we want everything instantly, right? Right now. Everything. That's right. And the the interesting thing about this 5G is that they have to have so many cell towers in order to make it hmm. so fast. And uh, that's a lot of radiation. Yeah. So a lot of people are really concerned about the microwaves that we will be experiencing. Like, you literally have to have multiple sort of hot spots yeah. on every block. So 
at what cost are we going mm. for all of this speed of technology? Um, so in this hyper, um, hyper, just must have it world right now, must have it right now world, um, it really is important to be patient. I think being black in America is a study of patience, mm. right? Um, we have, um, you know, been struggling for a recognition of our humanity since the beginning, since the very beginning of this country and since we have landed on these shores, which was a hundred plus years before this country when so so black people were here at the at the founding of yeah. this nation seventeen seventy six and completely written out of the whole concept of America and yet has been the driving force to help this country mm-hmm. recognize the, the meaning of its creed. Mm. Um, that all men are created equal with the inherent yeah. rights of you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so, um, <laughs> but they literally contradicted that <laughs> when they signed yeah. the document. And so the, that patience, I think, has been prevalent uh, and present for us for a long time. And, you know, I hope that people don't have to go to, to prison to learn that. Mm. Um, but, you know, if you do have to go learning lessons, life lessons there is really important. So welcome home, my friend, my brother. This reminds me, actually, I wrote down this quote uh, also from Atala Shabazz, one of Malcolm X's daughters. Some have said that my father was ahead of his time, but the truth is he was on time and perhaps we were late. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I left wanting to know more about her. I know, I know, right? I don't know much about her. An amazing woman he raised. Yeah. Councilmember Jenkins, thank you for remaining in Minneapolis when you could mm. have left and gone somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. Your work and your leadership is impactful on many levels and layers, and it's a pleasure to know you a little bit yeah. in the City Hall world. Huh. Two questions. Uh, one is... Why poetry, and how did that emerge in the versions of you, mm-hmm. and as opposed to other forms of writing? And then second, would you be willing to read Why I Wear Purple from T.S. Oh, yes. Wow. Uh, hello, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> the wonderful Dan Collison. How are you? Why poetry? I love poetry. So I teach poetry right now. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys know that. Teach another identity Uh, I didn't list. Teacher. Yes, I. um, I third year at uh, Minneapolis um, College of Art and Design, MCAD, and um, yeah, it's well, it's a very accessible art form, Mm -hmm. but. You know, I first became exposed to poetry when I was in first grade. Um, growing up in Chicago, Gwendolyn Brooks, who was the poet laureate at the time, um, when I was in first grade, and she came to my school. Like, that was her sort of job, yeah. right? And she came to my school, and, you know, she was talking about poetry and how we could all be poets and blah, blah, blah. And then... Um, and, I, you know, I, I don't know, I, I just kind of liked poetry. Like, you know, she would she read us some poems, E.E. E. Cummings and other, and it, mm-hmm. 
I liked it. And then when I was 14, I, I got this book called um, New Black Voices. And it was a book about the black, uh, the black arts movement and all of these poets, Emiri Baraka and Sonia Sanchez. And mm-hmm. um, there was one poet, Haki Marabuti, who was in this book. But he was also, Haki, Haki was from Chicago, and he had started this program called the Institute of Positive Education, uh, which was a school. He was all about sort of institution building, um, and it became a series of schools over time. And then, then he went on to start the Gwendolyn Brooks um, um, MFA program at uh, Chicago State University. But there was this poem that he wrote um, in um, in that book, New Black Voices. And I was like, wow, I could be a poet. <laughs> <laughs> if it's like this, right? Right, yeah. yeah. You know, and, and this, this was the black arts movement, and so it was all about being mm. that black is beautiful and that art should be, that black artists have a responsibility to make art that speaks to the social ills in our culture. And, um, you know, I just kind of started emulating Haki and other people. You know, one of, one of my favorite poets was Langston Hughes um, and still is um, to this day, and his poetry is, is kind of simplistic. In a, you know, it's very plain language um, mm. in many ways. Um, and, and, you know, that's kind of how I write. You know, I want, I feel like, if my grandmother can't understand my poetry and she was probably fourth grade education, mm-hmm. then and I failed somehow. I mean, she is a fourth grade education, but certainly she was a very wise woman, right? Mm-hmm. She raised ten kids and um but I, I wanted to have that kind of impact. I want to have that kind of impact with my poetry. And I don't know, it's, it's like I said, it's easily accessible. I'm, I'm a writer. I do write other forms. I'm working on a memoir right now. Um, and I publish creative nonfiction and, and work in um, academic books as well, but um, I love the the sound of poetry. I love the, the humanity that poetry can evoke in, in us. I love the fact that poetry gives us a sort of a shared experience. Mm. Um, and I really like to read it, too. It's, <laughs> it's fascinating. Yeah, it is. Well, your choice. Do you want to read the poem, or should oh, we yeah, give one right. more question? I think we only have time for one. Oh, my goodness. I feel like the poem. Is there, like, a burning question, or... Last chance. you got to get up. <laughs> can it be, like, a really quick one? <laughs> and then we can do the poem, too. I think it's too. the poem, then. Yeah. Did you have a question? Oh, okay, let's do that. <laughs> You're just voting for the poem. Right. I was going to say, you know this better than I do, obviously. Um, it's called A Requiem for the Queers, or Why We Wear the Color Purple. We wear purple because all queers deserve a royal crown. Mm-hmm because it speaks volumes to those who claim to be colorblind, and it connects us to an ancient cultural legacy. 
We wear purple because Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, two stars, street transvestite action revolutionaries wore purple when they marched at Stonewall. We wear purple for all the queers who died on June 24, 1973, in New Orleans, when a bigoted homophobe sprayed Ronzanol lighter fluid on the stairs and tossed a match, and the ensuing flames traveled to the upstairs lounge, killing 32 people, 40 years after Stonewall. We wear purple for all the queer and questioning youth that will sleep under a bridge or trade sex for a place to stay tonight. We wear purple for the indigenous, two-spirit people representing our struggle on the daily. We wear purple because radical women of color feminism shapes our mindset and thought process offering critical resistance to the prison industrial complex, male patriarchy, and religious subjugation. We wear purple because we have to rewrite the narrative of what is and who is a woman. We wear purple because the intersections of race, class, Gender and sexuality is the street we live on and we can't move, even if we wanted to. We have to act against what is considered normal. All of y'all can go and get married now, but I can't even vote because my ID does not quite match up to the person standing in the ballot box. All of y'all can go and get married now, but I still have to suffer a urinary tract infection because I can't go to the bathroom in some public spaces. All of y'all can go and get married now, but Cece McDonald was locked up in the men's prison at St. Cloud Correctional Facility for defending herself from racist, transphobic, and homophobic attacks while George Zimmerman, who murdered Trayvon Martin, is still walking around a free man with his gun in his waistband. All of y'all can go and get married now. And believe me, I am truly happy. It means that we have moved a little closer to a more just, more righteous society. But we still got a long way to go. The personal is political. We wear purple for Miss Major and the Transgender Intersex Justice Project, my homegirl from Chicago who marched at Stonewall too and is still putting in revolutionary work for the trans brothers and trans sisters on lockdown. We wear purple for Leslie Feinberg and Kate Bornstein, two transgender warriors. We will never forget what they taught us about who we are and what we are and how beauty is our birthright too. I wear purple for my people, my beautiful queer people. And what if love was the most powerful word in the ethos? Love, 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 love. And what if my transgender people were the embodiment of that love, representing everything and nothing. We wear purple because Elton John sang. And you can tell everybody this is your song. 
I know it might sound simple, but now that it's done, I hope you don't mind. I hope you don't mind if I put down in the words how wonderful life is when queers are in the world. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you.